It is uh, good to see you. We are in the book of James. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. We are starting this series called True Religion. Last week was the first week where we talked about this idea of uh, temptations and trials. And uh, we're carrying on with that in the middle part of chapter 1. This uh, last week, I was in L.A. for most of the week and was with uh, Christian Associates doing a Train the Trainer kind of thing. Um, and interesting time, but one of the things that uh, I learned is I have never been a big fan of sitting on my butt in classes for really long periods of time. How many of you can relate to that? Right, okay. So out of that is born this desire this morning for me to have our time be pretty interactive. Okay, so interactive means like I'll ask you something and then you'll respond or you'll talk to someone else about it and then respond. You get the idea. What I don't want to do is just stand up here and say a bunch of things to you and then you leave with a sore butt like my butt is sore from sitting in a chair for a really long time. All right. So this morning we are going to dive right into the book of James and here's what I want you to do first. We're 13 through 18. So if you have your Bible, read it to yourself quickly. Give you about 30 seconds or so. Chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. I assume by the fact that you're looking up at me now that most of you have concluded reading your section. Okay, James 1, 13 through 18. It starts off by saying, When tempted. When tempted. It goes right into this idea of trials before we talked about them. Now we're moving to this idea of temptation. So when tempted, someone tell me, what, is that, what does that phrase make you think? When you see that, what is it telling us? What is this phrase telling us? It's going to happen, okay? Temptation is going to happen. Very much like was communicated in the very beginning of this particular uh, passage, it says that whenever you face trials of many kinds, trials will come. In this case, it moves into saying that temptation will follow. That no matter what, you will at some point face temptation. Obviously, all of us have already faced it, but it's inevitable. We can't ignore it. It doesn't matter what your status in life is. It doesn't matter how much affluence you have. It doesn't matter what title you carry before or after your name. It doesn't matter who you are. Temptation will come. So when you think of temptation, how would you define it? Someone give me a working definition of temptation. What is temptation? That which makes you want to sin. Good. Someone else. What is temptation? Okay. A desire to do something counterproductive. Very good. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Okay. A gravitational pull to cross the line. That's the, in a lot of ways, those, those are great definitions of this idea of us being captured by something, seduced by something, longing for, craving, wanting, need to have it kind of idea. That's what temptation is about. It's that thing that when you pass it in the store, you just go, oh, I've got to have that. Or it's when you go into the refrigerator and you open it up for no good reason because it's not lunch or dinner or anything else. You just open it up just to see if something magically appeared. (laughs) 
And you get there and you go, oh, I got to have that. I got to have it now. That's what temptation is about. So what are some of the things that tempt us? Okay, give me examples. Now you don't, when you throw out an example, we're not going to assume that what you said is the greatest temptation of yours, okay? So just to, to make it real easy on all of you, one of the things that we're tempted by is lust. There you go, okay? So you're not assuming that I'm just a Mr. Lustful, okay? We're going to say, what are some things that you're tempted by? Drugs. What else? Food. Power. Violence. Greed. Is that what you said? TV. Or greed. TV makes you have greed. Okay, what else? Alcohol. Comfort. Pornography. Consumption. Decadence. Getting my own way. I mean, the list can go on and on. If we we're, if were to think about it or pause for a moment, most of us, I'm sure, could pinpoint those one or two things that just always seem to tempt. Those one or two things that always seem to kind of come up and lure us in. And the passage goes on to say, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. The idea behind that is this, that all of us have a propensity to blame shift. All of us have this propensity to point the finger. I don't know if you were born with it, but I was. From the time I was really little, I had a unique ability granted to me when I was born to be able to point the finger at other people. It'd be a time where my sister and I would get in a fight, and I'd simply do this. It's her fault. It's mine. I mean, look at me. I'm an angel, right? I'd try to find ways to, like, pawn it off on someone else. Pawn it off on my friends. Oh, it was their fault, Mom and Dad. I, I, honestly, I would have never gone along with that, except they kind of just drug me into it. Or you blame your teammates. Oh, man, we would have won this game if it wasn't Johnny's fault. He let in that other goal. You see that? That's horrible. Couldn't possibly be my fault. We keep coming up with ways to shift the blame. I mean, it's something that's been happening for pretty much all of creation. So, Someone give me some biblical examples of people or circumstances in the Scriptures where someone or a group of people shifted blame. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve is a perfect example. You know how the story goes. Perfect garden, have everything they could ever want. Perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with each other. They have shalom or peace at its finest. Anything they want, they have access to. I mean, they've named the animals. I mean, they've got lions for pets. They probably ride dinosaurs. I mean, this is, this is a pretty cool thing, right? I mean, they're just enjoying this life that God has given them. And he says, but there's just one tree that you don't eat of. And this desire was born. And all of a sudden, Eve takes of the fruit, eats it, gives it to Adam. So God comes to Adam and he says, Adam, 
Why do you know that you're naked? Why do you know that you have done something that is against what I've commanded you? And what does Adam do? It's her fault. Okay, it's interesting. He actually blames two people at the same time. He says, it's the woman that you gave me. Do you notice that? He doesn't just say, it's her fault, it's her fault, and you're the one that gave her to me. If you wouldn't have given her to me, we wouldn't be in trouble. It's her fault. Okay? So that happens, and then immediately after he points the finger at Eve, what does Eve do? Points the finger at the serpent. Immediately go, well, it's not me, it's the snake. You know? Now the snake happens to be Satan, and so he owns it. You know, he's like, yeah, that was me, for sure. (laughs) You know? I'll take that, you know? If it would have been any other animal, they probably would have tried to point down the line to some other animal, tried to figure out who, you know, looks uglier or shady, like a possum or something. Like, it's got to be, it's got to be that guy. He looks crazy. You get the idea that there's just this idea of shifting the blame, finger pointing. Give us another biblical example. Okay, David and Bathsheba is another good one. Pick another one. Samson and Delilah. What are some others? Okay, Joseph and his brothers could be one. Cain and Abel was one. So very the very beginning, the first murder takes place, and it's like finger pointing happens. Well, I mean, my offering wasn't good, and it's his fault. It's not my fault. It couldn't possibly be. One of my favorite blame shifting moments in all of the Bible comes in. I think it's Exodus 32. Moses comes down off the mountain, has the Ten Commandments in his hands. He's been for 40 days speaking, hanging out with God. Gets the law, comes down off the mountain, and as he kind of, you can imagine, like, he's up in the clouds, he descends, he steps through the clouds, begins to see the people, and madness is happening. I mean, there's like like this big party celebration slash orgy going on. People are like worshiping and bowing down to a golden calf. And Moses immediately goes to Aaron, gets ticked off, breaks the stones, and says to Aaron, what's the deal? Aaron says a couple interesting things. First of all, he says, it's the people's fault. They, they made me do it. The second thing that he does that I find quite interesting, he says, well, they just gave me all this gold and I threw it in the fire and oh, came a calf. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't know that that would happen. So he blames like the calf and he blames the people. Moses goes and stands before all the people. Why did this happen? And they go, oh, it's the calf's fault and it's Aaron's fault. So then he goes to Aaron, what are you doing? And he goes, Moses, it's actually your fault. You spent 40 days up there. We thought you were dead. We didn't know. So we just started over and we began to carry on our own life because you no longer were our leader. Blame shifting happens all of the time. I find that it happens in my life. And it probably happens in yours. Let me give you a couple examples of maybe ways in which we finger point. I know that when uh, there's a tendency to get angry, one of the things we do is we point our finger. So like, I wouldn't have gotten angry. I wouldn't have lost my cool. I wouldn't have had this display of temper if my kids would have actually just behaved. 
It's really their fault. Or, you know, I, if my spouse was more considerate or if my classmate would have somehow been generous with his study notes, I wouldn't have gotten angry. Or if the teacher wouldn't have given me such a stupid test. And that, those questions were ridiculous. Did you see them? Or we begin to have impatience. You know, around here, when I first moved here, and I realized that you guys drive the speed that people do in subdivisions back east, I went, what is, this is division. This is like four lanes. This is, we got to be going like 50, not 25. What happened? I got impatient. You know, or, or you go to the grocery store, and it always seems to happen to me. Maybe it doesn't happen to you, but you look for the shortest line. You know how that is? And then you like jump into the shortest one, and you're going, oh, man, I'm totally going to beat all those people back there. And then you've got the slowest cashier known to man, and it just takes forever. And these people are blitzing through, and another 10 came, and they all went through, and you're just standing there like, we haven't even moved. What is going on? There's that... And just this desire in all of us to shift the blame. We do it with our critical spirit. You get this critical spirit, you get this anger inside, this frustration and tension, and it's because it's somebody else's fault. Our boss is an idiot. Our parents are ridiculous. You get the idea. Blame shifting has gone on for a long time. And the passage says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Why is it that we shift the blame to God? What are your thoughts on that? What? He made us, okay? Why else do we shift the blame to God? Because He'll forgive us, so if we blame Him, He'll end up forgiving us anyway, okay? Okay, an attempt to make our actions righteous. Good. Other thoughts. Why blame God? Okay. Yeah, it's, he's in control of everything. He probably put it in my, play, in my way in the first place, so we'll blame him. Any other thoughts? <laughs> yeah, and if you're blaming him, he might not. Um, yeah, it's easy to assume, hey, I'm, God, you're not going to talk back, so I'll just blame you. If I blame this person, they'll probably say something in response. We, we have this natural tendency to blame others, or what we end up doing is we blame God. And the passage says this, when tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. So the passage moves into this idea that, listen, you can't point the finger at others. You can't point the finger at God. If there's one place you point the finger, it has to be at you. That there's this desire in all of us that, like a little hook for a fish, you bite on and it drags you away. And he talks about this idea and then he says that, that desire, this desire, when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Here's what I want you to do. I want you for about one minute to turn to a partner next to you and I want you to answer this question. Why is it that James uses this birth analogy. Why does, when he's describing sin, does he talk about it as desire, conceiving, giving birth to sin, sin growing up to become this monster called death? Why does he use 
a birth analogy. And how does a birth analogy relate to this idea of sin growing? All right? Talk to your neighbor. you got about one minute. Kick around some ideas, and then we'll uh, talk about them together. So someone tell me, why the birth analogy? How does this relate? How does this word picture relate to a concept he's trying to communicate? What are your thoughts? Starts off small, gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Good. What else? Only gets bigger if you feed it. Okay, that's good. You have a little baby, you starve it, it it's not getting any bigger. Okay? Good. That's just cruel, but good. Yes. Someone else? Okay, it takes two to make it. All right? Give me some others. Okay, we nurture it like a child. We take care of it. We, like, bring it along. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Human imagery versus, like, a seed imagery, talking about the birth of a, a plant or a flower or whatever, human imagery makes it touch home much more clear. Good. Yeah. Yeah, we don't understand the magnitude of it when we first get it. Good. Other thoughts? <laughs> Did you say babies look innocent at first? <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Any final thoughts? Absolutely. Here, here's, here's what we end up doing. It, it's really that sin is oftentimes a death by a thousand cuts. Have you ever heard of that illustration? That just slowly begins to eat away. It continues to grow. And in many ways, there's a lot of hidden development that takes place. Over the first like three or four months, you may not even be able to recognize in someone else the effects. That something is growing within us. Something is being nurtured. Something is being taken care of that you have no idea about. The other thing that kind of happens is even before the child is there, you begin to see the effects on the person. Generally, the mom's belly begins to enlarge. You get the idea, right? Something that's hidden begins to grow. Once it's grown, once that desire gives birth to that sin, then if we continue to nurture it, continue to bring it along, continue to feed it, it will grow to the point where it becomes an uncontrollable monster. I was reading someone kind of wrote a little poem that's a, an explanation of this passage. And uh, I, I, I read it this week and it really struck me. Here's, here's what the poem says. Are you tempted? Then don't blame God. Don't even blame evil itself. Don't say, the devil made me do it. No. If you are tempted, then take a good hard look at yourself. Whose desire leads you into temptation, if not your own? You know what it's like, and so do I. Your desire is your desire. It's not imposed from somewhere else. This is your desire for security for wealth, for health, for status, for honor. And yet somehow this desire takes control of you. 
These are your desires, and these are my desires, and yet we find ourselves dragged away, enticed, seduced, perhaps even raped by our own desires. We become slaves of these desires, sex slaves, and from our unholy copulation with our own desires, after these desires have conceived, after we've become pregnant through this perverse form of self-rape, sin is born. And when sin grows up, when sin comes to maturity, when sin becomes full-grown, sin itself gives birth to death. I don't know how that strikes you. When I read that, when I came across that, the point that James is making here is don't, don't blame God. Don't blame others. Take a good hard look at yourself. Are you nurturing temptation? Are you nurturing desire? If you had to be honest with yourself right now, and you were to ask yourself that question, is there something in your life right now that you're bringing along like someone brings along a little child? you're feeding, that you're playing with, that you're spending time with. Because whatever it is will ultimately grow up. As the passage says, it leads toward death. Now here's where the focus of the passage changes. So James is spelling it out and he says, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. For He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He created. We'll get to that one in a minute. The passage goes on to shift our focus from us, to where our focus should always go, and that is God. So instead of blaming others or blaming God, what the passage is doing is saying, listen, you find yourself in this state, shift your focus. And the focus goes to the picture of who God is. And it says very simply, and I'm just going to walk through a couple things to close. He says that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Everything that you have that you value, everything that you hold dear, everything that you imagine to be a gift is a gift that comes from above. The passage goes on to say that it's from the Father of heavenly lights, meaning the God of all creation. This big, glorious, incredible God speaks into your life and gives you good gifts. He provides for you. He enables you to have breath and life. It then goes on to say that He is a God that never changes. So this God that we sometimes want to blame for bringing things into our life that that seem to come from Him or seem to come from out of nowhere, that no, this is a God that does not change. It says, the passage literally says, with Him there is no shadow of change. There is no turning. Then it says that He chose us. That each of us have been chosen. That He of His own will chose you. It it goes on to say, to give birth through the word of truth. And what that means is this. 
And there's another passage in 1 Peter that talks about the idea that you are a chosen people, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you have been called out of darkness and into his wonderful light. The idea is that he chose Josh, and he said, I will make him my own. I will love him. I will give him good gifts. Everything that he has that he can point to of value comes from me, even his very salvation, even this relationship that he has with me. And he wraps it up by saying this, that we are the kind of first fruits of all he created. The message says the last line like this, that he brought us life using the true word, showing us off as the crown of all his treasures. That he is saying, you are the chosen one. You are the one that I care for. And I've, I've picked you. And you are the crown of everything I've created. It's a pretty amazing picture. Right in the middle of this passage, from verse 2 where Kevin started last week to verse 18 where we finished this week, there's verse 12 right in the middle that says this, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial or temptation. It's the same Greek word. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Let me say this to conclude. What the passage is saying is that as you endure the trial, as you endure the temptation, don't be tempted to shift the focus to others. Don't be tempted to shift the focus to God. Walk through it, and as you do, you will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love Him. Meaning this, that you will be blessed in the present life. There's all throughout the Bible, it talks about this idea, the man who follows the ways of God will be blessed now. But it is also this eternal hope of glory that you will receive for your life now the actions will correspond with the future. Let's pray.